Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, between the Z's. Haggai chapter 2. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, I'm not promoting it necessarily, but it sort of doesn't make as much sense if you didn't hear chapter 1 or if you want to read through chapter 1 and, um, and then hear back chapter 2 again because the, the two chapters of Haggai make, more, make most sense, of course, like anything else in Scripture when taken in context and together and, and when you see the full picture of what God is doing here in this little uh, book. Last week, or during when we did chapter 1, it was mostly concerned about the admonition that he was giving the people of Israel and, and to us by extension to consider your ways. Remember how many times that came up in that chapter, consider your, consider your ways. And that admonition was given, or that rebuke was given in the light of Israel's disobedience to the Lord, you know, to continue the work of rebuilding the temple. And so, where were we? we are, where are we? We discussed last time in that. You know, where are we? Should we be considering our ways when it comes to our obedience to the Lord, not partial, not delayed. Remember, we learned that uh, delayed obedience is disobedience, and how Spurgeon put it so uh, directly that every time we continue to delay, we continue to sin. That's that should have really hit us pretty hard. If the Lord is 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 guiding us towards something that He wants us to do for His kingdom, for His glory, and we keep putting it off. We keep putting other things before it. So, last week was really 90% admonition, 90% rebuke, but then, you know, praise the Lord, He gives us a little glimmer of hope, and the chapter closes with a, a glimmer of hope, and then tonight, the glory returns. The glory returns. So just to, uh, just to recap the last few verses in Haggai 1, in verses 12 through 15, it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, the, ho uh, the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So we see here that the people finally got it. You know, and that's an encouragement to us that, that God is patient with us, that He's long-suffering with us. And even in our disobedience, He'll continue to draw us. He'll continue to, 
You see, he gave the people a prophet. He gave the people someone to speak for him to the, to the people so that they would better understand what the Lord wanted from them. And obedience, the Bible says, is better than sacrifice. So what does the Lord want from us? He wants our obedience. So whatever that is in our lives, and that's what I love about the Bible because it, it can apply individually to each of us wherever we're at, whatever situation we find ourselves in, in whatever relationship with the Lord, wherever that is, He may be telling us all different things, but we need to be obedient to those things. So the Lord's messenger come, comes and says, I am with you, says the Lord. You know, even in the midst of their disobedience, God still draws them and draws us. And then the Lord stirs the people up, stirs the people up to do the work of the Lord. It, it's, not, it's not something that comes from man. It's something that comes from God. The ministry of the Lord, and we all have been given a ministry. We've been given, the Bible says, the ministry of reconciliation. As believers, we know that we've been reconciled back to God because of His sacrifice, because of our trust and our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We have been reconciled back to Him. Now we go out with the ministry of reconciliation, it says in the Scriptures. So we all have a ministry. And when the Lord is leading you to speak to that person behind the, behind the register at the supermarket or, or leading you to give a co-worker a tract or, or to, to pray with somebody who's going through some struggles, we need to be obedient to those things. Those are the things that He leads us to. It's not maybe something as great as, as building the temple of the Lord, but, but it's, it's, it's in His eyes... It's just as important. And that's something else that we're going to see tonight. We're going to see that, that as people, we, sort of, we look at the big things for God as greater than the little things for God. And that's just a human trait. I think that's just our, our, the way we look at, at anything. We, we sort of look at the, the greater, the bigger, the more, uh, you know, the, the, the more flamboyant, the, the larger, the prettier, we, we think is greater for the Lord, the ones with the most numbers, the, the, you know, uh, the, the car with the most bells and whistles, whatever. And, and that's not how God looks at things. You know, he sees every work as, as, as important. Remember the, remember the ones who stayed back with the stuff, you know, when they went out to the, when the others went out to war. The ones who stayed back in the camp with the stuff did just as important a job as the ones who went to war. The, the missionary who goes out to a far land does a great work for the Lord, but those people that stay home and support them in prayer and, in, and, and financially, just as important. So we'll see that tonight, that as humans we sort of have a different way of looking at things. We need to get more in line with how God looks at the work. But... Coming off of the end of chapter 1, we get that hope. So we are anticipating now. You know, we, we, we saw the disobedience. We saw the, the blessings that were taken away from the people for their disobedience. And now we have a hope. And that hope is twofold. First, we see that because the Lord is long-suffering and patient with us, 
that he gives us time to repent. He gives us time to finally get it. You know, and sometimes it takes longer than at other times. And some of us get it quicker than others. But the Lord is patient in all of that. So he gives us time. He's, he's, he's long-suffering. And it's our opportunity to turn back to him. That's what the patience that he gives us does. Gives us that opportunity to turn away from our disobedience and toward him in obedience. And then secondly, even in the midst of discouraging times, the Lord is always with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us, the Bible says. So no matter what, he's with us. So let's jump in to chapter 2. The blessings of obedience. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, what's God saying here to the people? He's saying, I know what you're thinking. I know how you're looking at this new work of the Lord. And you're comparing this work to the old work. You're comparing this temple to the old temple, to Solomon's temple, to that temple that was beautiful and ornate and, and the gold and the, and the expensive woods and all the overlay and the exotic building and the architecture. You're comparing it. Because some of them were old enough to have seen the prior temple. You see, the work began enthusiastically on the new temple, but pretty quickly they became, many of them became discouraged because some of those people had seen the splendor of the old temple, the beauty. But it's not about the outside. Remember we learned that also in chapter 1. It's not about the outside, it's about the inside. And God looks at the heart of man. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. And whatever we're doing for the Lord, you know, it, it's not about the exterior, it's about what are the motives of your heart? Where is your heart with that? So, Let's consider that God is saying to them, I know what you're thinking as you're looking at this temple. And you're saying, in verse 3, in comparison with the old temple, you're seeing this as nothing. You're seeing this temple as nothing. Listen to, in Ezra chapter 3, just two verses. You should mark it down and go and look at it. We don't have it ready to go up, but... Listen to in Ezra 3 the mixed reaction from the people as they were building this new temple. It says in verse 12 and 13, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. 
yet many shouted for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Now think about this scene. They're laying the foundation of this new temple as God had prescribed, as God had, had, uh, had told them to. They were finally being obedient to do the work to complete it. And some of the old men who had seen the former temple were actually weeping because in their eyes, this temple was as nothing. And then others were shouting with joy because the new work was being done. And they sort of drowned each other out. So you couldn't even figure out if there was weeping, is there shouting, is there weeping, is there shouting, I don't know, I can't figure it out. Sounds like weeping and shouting. Some wept for joy, or shouted for joy, because the temple was finally going to be rebuilt. Yet some wept because the splendor was not as glorious as the old temple. They shouldn't have despised the size and the beauty of this temple because remember what he said at the end of chapter 1, I am with you, said the Lord. I am with you. If the Lord is in it, we should be joyful. They made comparisons to the good old days, so to speak. How many times do we compare the work that the Lord is doing now with maybe previous times or maybe another place that we were at in our lives, or longing for that earlier glory. How many times do we make those comparisons? I think, this is just my opinion, I think that as long as the Lord tarries in His return, that He wants us to do new work, continue with the work of the Lord, that we shouldn't sort of rest on our laurels or, or continue to look back at the good old days and say, well, that's really when the Lord was working. No, He's desiring to, to do a new work, to do a work in our days that we may see, that we may be a part of. Why would He consider the, the, the ones that have gone before as more, more uh, I don't know, able to see the work of the Lord being done than, than, than us? So we need to consider that the current work of the Lord is just as glorious. And listen, if, the God is, if God is in this work, the current work, then we should rejoice in that. But if God is not in this work, then we, we all need to reevaluate what we're doing, right? Because it's all about God being in it. And I think about the message that was given by... Uh, by a pastor this past week at the pastor's conference down in uh, Maryland. Uh, Damien Kyle spoke about this, this thing. I wasn't there, but I heard it on CD. Some churches are more concerned about the activities that are going on around the church than whether it's God's will. Some are more concerned about, about big programs than they are about whether it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work, that's leading and guiding the leaders. Some are more concerned about 
doing work in their own strength and depending and leaning on and relying on the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if we're doing that, then we're not really a church. We're a sort of a social organization. We're, we're, you know, we may do good works, but if the Lord isn't in it. So it's not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's not about the splendor of old and reminiscing. And it's good to remember. You know, we're, we're, we're told many times to keep a journal of what the Lord's done. And it's awesome to go back and see over the years what He's done. But He really is desiring to do, to do a work in our day that we may glorify Him through that work. Verses, two, verses 4 and 5, back to Haggai 2. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. How encouraging. He says it again. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Awesome. Awesome encouragement to the people, to the leaders, doing that work of the Lord. My spirit is with you. We need to hear that. We need to be constantly connected to the Holy Spirit as a church to, to know whether the spirit is in the work. It needs to be the most important thing that we do to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, to hear those words, my spirit remains among you. Go ahead. Do the work. I'm blessed because of it. I'm with you, says the Lord. See, we also see that God can't be restrained by time or place, that where Wherever there are people who desire to worship Him, His presence is there. The Lord spoke through the prophet saying, Carry on with the work. I will inhabit the new temple just as I inhabited the old temple. And as we'll learn as we go through, they didn't even realize how real those words were that He would inhabit this new temple because he really did inhabit that temple in, more, in a more real way than they could imagine. And then in verses 6 through 9, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. The gold is mine, the silver is mine. What's, what's God saying here? He's saying, don't be so concerned about whether you have the financial resources to do the work and put it in today's language, I will provide. I remember and I constantly think about it when I do ministry. Pastor Chuck 
Smith saying, where God guides, God provides. If God is guiding, if the Holy Spirit is in the work, He's going to provide. Don't be concerned about all of the peripheral things around the work. I'll take care of that, God says. If I'm in it, you just need to be continually in prayer, continually seeking me, and I'll provide everything that you need for the work to be accomplished. It's His work, and it's His silver, and it's His gold. It's all His. We just get to be a part of it. And then, what does He mean in verse 7? And they shall come to the desire of all nations. The desire of all nations. And in your Bible, that's probably capitalized, right? So what is he saying here? Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. You know, the Messiah was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Jews knew that the Messiah would come through that lineage, the Jewish line. They knew that the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world, would come through the chosen people. Every mother who was pregnant throughout all of the history before Jesus Christ came probably wondered, every Jewish mother probably wondered, will I carry the Messiah? Will I be carrying the desire of all nations? Now, of course, they didn't see all of the prophecies because many of them weren't even written that, that gave the, the time and the date and the, the, the place and all of those details as to the birth of the Messiah. But they knew. They knew. Way back in Genesis, it was prophesied of a Savior coming through. So the desire of all nations is Jesus Christ. Now they could be talking about the first coming of Jesus. Think about it. This is the temple that Jesus worshipped in. This is the temple. So think about His glory will fill that temple. You bet it did. More than they even knew. Or could be talking about the second coming. The desire of all nations. When he establishes his kingdom and he reigns as the King of kings and Lord of lords, his glory will fill the earth. And all believers, all of us, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He will fill us. He will, he will abide with us. Those Rebuilding, we're given encouragement from these verses here. The Lord is going to complete the work because it's His desire to do that. If He wants the temple rebuilt, He will get it done. He will use us to do, to do His work. And then in verses 10 through 14, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge 
he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now this is, where do we, where do we go from here? What's God trying to tell us here? Speaking of holy meat and, and, and uh, dead bodies and holy things, unholy things. Just to boil it down, it's easier to become unholy than it is to become holy. It's easier to get dragged into conversations at your workplace that are dishonoring to God than it is to sort of raise the conversation up to a, to a place where it honors God. It's easier, think about this, some things are only transferable in one direction. If you're sick, you can't catch health from somebody that's healthy. In other words, you can't touch somebody that's healthy and become healthy. But if you're healthy and you stand too close to someone who's sick, you're probably going to get sick. It's the same way with our holiness. It's easier for us to become unholy than it is to become holy. So what is he saying here? That even the work of their hands will be, will be unclean. Why? Why is that? Well, think about it. Even if we're doing something good, even if we're doing something good for the Lord, even if we're serving the Lord, that service can become corrupted by our own sinfulness. If we serve to be seen by others, if we serve to boost our own reputation, that service is corrupted by our own pride. Remember what I said earlier. It's about the inside. It's about the motives of the heart. It doesn't matter what it looks like when the work is done. What matters is, were you serving the Lord to glorify Him? If not, that work has become unholy. That work has become unclean in the Lord's eyes. Makes us really think about what we're doing from, for the Lord and why we're doing it. See, it's always about why. What are the motives behind what we're doing? It's easier, remember, it's easier to become unclean than it is to become clean. It's easier to become unholy. How quickly we can fall into unholiness. How quickly can we fall into sin? How difficult sometimes to climb out of that and to get back into a right place with the Lord. Even our own, even our own sinfulness, you know, our, our pride sometimes gets the best of us and we can't, even, we can't even get back to prayer before the Lord because we're just too, we just feel that you know, we're not worthy. 
And yet, how easy was it to fall into that stuff? So, good lesson here, sort of given in a strange way, but, but uh, we, we can understand it. We can understand it. And then, verses 15 through 19. And now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to wine, a wine vat to dry out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn from me to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from that day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. Listen, when they came back into the land, they, they were, their economic situation was pretty, pretty bleak, pretty de- depressed. And it was because of their disobedience that he removed the blessing from them. Remember. Because of their disobedience, the, the, the earth didn't produce. They came to, to get 20 ephahs of flour, and there were only 10. They drew the wine out of the, out of the vat, and there were supposed to be 50, but there were only 20. The grapes weren't producing. There was circumstances that led to... The, the, the disobedience led to these circumstances in their lives. But God was going to change that. He says in verse 19, but this, from this day I will bless you. From this day. And again, Haggai tells us, consider this, consider this. Most times the reason we don't get blessed is because we're out of God's will. Most times the reason God removes His blessings is because we're disobedient. To him. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this, a great old Bible commentator. He says, When we begin to make conscious, conscience of duty to God, we may expect his blessing. And whoso is wise will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. God will curse the blessings of the wicked and make bitter the prosperity of the careless. But he will sweeten the cup of affliction to those who diligently serve him. You see, it's all about our obedience to him, our service to him. And even in our affliction, he says, it will, it will be sweet because that's what God desires to do. He desires to make beauty out of ashes, the Bible says. He desires to take our affliction and even make that a blessing. We learned in Romans the other day that, that no matter what we're going through, that if we are the called of God, that we should rejoice in it because it's His work. It's His desire for us. And then to close up in verses 20 through 23, 
And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Great promises to this uh, governor, Zerubbabel, who oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. Great promises. First, Zerubbabel is given a special place in God's eyes because he did oversee the work. And he was giving him great privilege. God was giving him great blessings. And he spoke directly to him through the prophet. And then he was included. Listen to this. Zerubbabel was included in the bloodline of the Messiah. The desire of nations would come through his bloodline. As a matter of fact, Zerubbabel was actually the last ancestor of Jesus Christ who was in both the line of Joseph, his earthly father, and Mary. If you trace it back, he was the last one who fulfilled both sides of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. He confirmed the validity of Jesus' rightful kingship of Israel. So, awesome that this, that this governor Zerubbabel was given this, uh, this opportunity and these promises. And he would be given the Holy Spirit, it says in Zechariah 4, 5, and 7. The work was to be done by the empowering of the Spirit. And then he would be encouraged to make Judah a great nation. All of these promises came to him. And we can look at Zerubbabel as, as even a type of Christ because Christ is the foundation upon which the church is built. He entrusted the building of the church to Jesus Christ and he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish that work. And so we see that also, this type, typography in Zerubbabel. Awesome lessons on obedience, on blessings, on where our heart is when we're working and serving the Lord. Awesome lessons on even the blessings that God will remove from us when our heart is not in the right place. And that no matter what it looks like on the outside, to God, what are the motives? Where's your heart? And we're talking about building. We're talking about foundations. We're going to close up. Just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because it's important also that we see that, you know, we, studied, we study the entire Bible, the whole counsel of God we, we teach in the Old Testament and the New. And, you know, a lot of times we find these Old Testament books a little obscure, hard to understand, and even the, the reference to the holy meat and the unholy. But in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 
verses 11 through 16. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about where we fit in as the church, where we fit in as Christians. It says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the basis for our, for our faith. That's the basis for everything that we do. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what is it saying here? It's saying that as believers, we've been given a choice. We can do the work of the Lord. We cannot do it. But even if we decide to do the work of the Lord, what are we building that work upon? Is it upon the foundation of what Jesus Christ has done, the, the work that he completed at the cross? Is it, is it giving back to him because of our gratitude for what he's done? Is, our, is the desire of our heart to bless God, to glorify God, to, to bring more into his kingdom? Or is a desire to some self-centered motives? What Paul is saying here is that stuff is going to be weighed and rewards will be given based on where your heart is with the work. What are the motives? And then in verse 16 it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? We are the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells in you. See, it's not about the building. It's not about the old. It's not about Solomon's temple. It's not about the new temple. It's not about the building of God. It's about the church of Christ. Jesus Christ dwells in his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us and he will be with us to perform whatever He desires through us, if we continue to seek Him. Let's pray.